Well, hello there. This is deja vu for some of you. Um, my name's Vic Vogt. Uh, I, if you don't know me, I um, was on staff here many moons ago and uh, was the worship minister primarily for many years. So it is really good to be here. Um, Doug approached me. We had a meeting a couple months ago, and he um, kind of approached me and said, hey, I'd really like you to speak sometime. And he said, you know, we're going to do this life verse series, and would you be willing to do that? And I said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. I'd love to come back and, and speak and, and those. And, and then I realized uh, he just made a huge ask. Um, now, for most people, that's not a problem. You know, you, you say, okay, I've got a verse that's been really important to me in my life, and I, I don't, will have no problem saying, here's the verse, and here's my testimony and how it's affected my life. But that's not the way I think. I, I tend to take the Bible holistically, and for different points in my life, for different occasions, there's been verses that have been more applicable, more directive, and then it's not that you negate those later on, but then you move on to something else and you find something else that really speaks to you. As you age, as you mature, there are different things. So it was really hard for me to say, okay, here is the verse that directed my life. But as I contemplated, there was one verse that probably has guided my life more than any other. And uh, it hasn't necessarily been in a good way. But before I share that verse, I think it's important to see the verse in its context. The verse is found in the teachings of Jesus that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And typically it's Matthew 5 through 7, and there's some other Gospels that have portions of that. But the Sermon on the Mount is this incredibly radical teaching of Jesus that no one would call their life verse. I mean... There's verses in there about things like gouging your eyes out or cutting off your hand or, or if they want one, give them two and turn the other cheek kind of stuff. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is what your faith would look like if you had perfect faith in God. It's this extreme. The Sermon on the Mount is how you grow and mature as you get more and more into the kingdom life that God intended. And the more as you see the kingdom of God in this world and what, it's, what it is from his perspective. Jesus starts out in the extreme. The kingdom from God's perspective. Here it is, the value system upon which I operate and I hope you get there someday. I want you to imagine Jesus' words from those people who heard it for the first time when he was on that mount and speaking to them. For I tell you, he says, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And they say, wait, aren't they the good ones? They're not going to go to heaven? You have heard it said. You shall not murder, 
But I tell you, and anytime you hear those words, but I tell you, Jesus sets the standard a little higher. He says, you shall not murder, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Wait a minute, Jesus. You're saying that if I you have heard it said... You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, again, raising the standard, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wait, Jesus, you're saying that it is your right, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one eye, one part of your body, than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Are you serious, Jesus? And if you cut your right hand, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now you're getting ridiculous. If you heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Yeah, yeah, Moses said something about that. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Well, Jesus, what about, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Aren't I supposed to have, no, but they, they may be your children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to ride, rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Well, that doesn't seem exactly fair, Father. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm sure some people in the audience that was gathered there said, okay, Betty, gather the kids, we're going home, we can't handle all this stuff. I mean, you're talking about cutting off your arm, gouging your eye out, turning your cheek, giving my cloak to somebody. It's too much. I can't follow this guy. Be perfect. And not only perfect from a human perspective, but perfect as God is perfect, it says. Now, there have been entire theologies that have resulted from this one verse. If Jesus commanded it, they reason, we must be able to accomplish it. Be perfect, be sinless, be like God. And that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus says. It's not what he was teaching. We can accept that Jesus was being hyperbolic, that he was exaggerating to the extreme when he was saying, this is how kingdom life is in God's perspective, and this is how it is in human perspective because we're fallible. He told us to cut off our hands, gouge out our eyes. We can understand exaggeration there, but being perfect, surely that's a command that we should strive for. Jesus pointing out the impossible culmination of fallen human impossible standards. When he says there's no anger, no lust, no lies, no divorce, no retaliation, Jesus is pointing out without grace, it's impossible. Look, I want to point out that there are two different concepts that we understand as perfect. Perfect. 
One is the static idea that something cannot be improved upon. It's, it's kind of like the, what we usually think of, this Latin word perfectus, which means it's ex- exactly as it should be. It's a, it's, it's, you can't get any better than that. Then there's this other concept of perfect, is the idea of completion. That something is as intended, the maturity is occurring. That's more of the idea that is being shown here. The Greek word, actually, that we translate perfect is teleos. It can also be translated as fully developed, mature, complete. And not only is it the idea of being complete, but it's also in this verse in the future tense. The idea that would be best translated, you shall be perfected, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be fully developed as God is complete. You are a work in progress. Now, I know that's still an abstract concept, but it's something that God does in us and through us and not something that we do in and of ourselves. We see this in the letters of Paul especially. Philippians 1.6 says this, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The word there, completion, has the same root, teleos, and it can be translated perfection. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to perfection until the day of Christ Jesus. You are a, 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 a project In process, you are a perfection as Jesus works in you. But we turn that process around and make it about striving for perfection rather than allowing the Creator to perfect us into the image that He desires. God is perfecting us. He provided Jesus as our stand-in. He is our substitute. And that is the gospel message. We are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and we stand perfect in the eyes of the Father. But when we take the responsibility for perfection away from God and we assume that role for ourselves, we move towards something that's not perfect, but it's perfectionism. And that's a not-so-subtle form of legalism that is inward-focused and brings about blame, judgment, and shame. We even call it, you're striving for perfection. That's a theological term there, striving for perfection. It's part of many theologies. We need to work hard to be like Jesus, and, and that's true. We, we, we work, but it is not perfectionism that we are striving for. The rejection of anything that's less than perfect for yourselves and sometimes even for others. It's a terrible way to live. But in many ways, perfectionism has been a hallmark of my life, often to the point of being debilitating. That's the reason I've said that Matthew 5, 48 is my life verse, even if it's for the wrong reasons. Through my entire life, I have had issues 
with perfectionism. And some of that's linked with something I didn't discover until about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that I had. And uh, it's called ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. And uh, some call it, and there's been a whole realm of study on this, and it's not just kids, and adults get it and, and, and things, but they call it neurodivergence. My brain is wired differently than many of your brains. I don't think in the same way that you think. <laughs> and some of you are saying, boy, that's obvious. You know, you know me, you know how slob, much of a slob and messy I am and, and all those things. There's characteristics, and, and when I was kind of diagnosed by the doctor and things, there's characteristics, inability to focus. These are just the ones that apply to me. There, there's also ADHD, and that's the hyperactive part, and I, I don't have that as much, although I still get very anxious in boring meetings and things and tap my foot and kind of shift positions a lot and, or sermons, you know. <laughs> I, I was kind of not off to sleep because I'm not in, oh, no, that's not me. Um, the inability to focus or prioritize. I'll be thinking about something and then something will happen and you're automatically over there. And, oh, that leads to this. And, you know, oh, I didn't think about that. Well, that leads over here. And suddenly you're way over here instead of back where you should be. Ever done that? Um, it happens especially when I try to pray. You try, you know, okay, Father, I really need you to, I need you to focus here and pray for these specific things. Um, I, I pray for the people in Ukraine. Oh, Ukraine, huh. I went there and I, I thought about, and then suddenly I'm down the thing, well, I wonder what's going on right now in the war. So I get out my phone, which is one of the worst things about ADD people because it's constantly there and it constantly leads you down rabbit trails that you shouldn't be on. And then prayer is forgotten. I continually lose or misplace things. Um, <laughs> I lose my keys all the time. Um, it's just a, a, a matter of habit. That, and my wife tries to say, okay, you need to put them in this place always. And they somehow get somewhere else. Uh, if I work on a project, I'll be working on like, uh, an electrical project, and uh, I'll be doing the thing there, and then I go a couple days later, I'm thinking, okay, I need to do this over here. I've got my, you know, name, whatever the tool was that I was using before. It's still where I was doing the project before because I didn't put it away because I was distracted and did something else. So I constantly am misplacing tools and things like that. Coffee cups. Um, our family is coffee drinkers, and in fact, we say our, our, um, uh, our symbol, our, our, our shield, what do you call it? Our family crest is a coffee stain uh, on, a, on, a, on a napkin. You know, that's kind of what it is, but 
I, we have so many coffee cups because I literally lose coffee cups everywhere. I'll be going to get something and I'll put my coffee cup on a shelf and then I'll go down and, and it's like, well, where my coffee go? And so I just get another coffee cup out and I'll do another cup of coffee and so we make more coffee and and then about three weeks later I find that coffee cup up on the shelf with green stuff growing out of it you know um carelessness um (laughs) there have been so many times that I've put my kids in danger because of things that I've left around, they're over here laughing. My daughter, Lindsay, still has a scar on her face because she stepped on a hoe that I left out in the garage because it hit her white smack dab in the face. Even yesterday, I was working with my oldest grandson, John, and uh, we were working on a model airplane, and um, I had an, uh, a box cutter, sharp blade, that I... That, and we got distracted, and I was somewhere else. And this morning, or the next day, my wife says, or this morning, I guess, she says, "What's this box cutter doing out here, wide open, where my youngest grandchild could, you know, do all kinds of things?" That's that's me. Continually starting new tasks before finishing old ones. Our house is filled to the brim with unfinished projects. And part of that is is because I'm always interested in doing something else. I got tired of that one and I want to do something else. And so I do that. And the discipline, you say, well, just be more self-disciplined. Well, yeah, but that's not the way I think. And it's hard. And, and, And some of you can identify with this and others of you are saying, oh man, you're a mess. Poor organizational skills, um, I have a long-suffering wife, Nancy, who, who knows my lack of organization, and fortunately she's an organizer and can keep things because if it was left to my devices, our house would be a wreck. And a lot of times it is because she gives up on certain areas, and she'll just do her side and say, you, you mess with your stuff. Uh, forgetfulness, don't ask me to remember significant dates because I forget them. Um, I, there, there's something about ADD people that cannot understand time consequences. Um, you've got a deadline, something, and you think, well, I'll get to that later. Procrastination, you know, it's going to, oh, you know, and then suddenly it's there. And you, oh, this has got to be done. And you hyper-focus, and then you accomplish it, and you say, well, you know, it, it's, debilitating it's it you you go <laughs> you get exhausted because you spent the whole night working on it I mean case in point this sermon that I'm talking about perfectionism and all that I, I was up at one o'clock this morning f- working on this sermon AD now I don't want you to understand ADD is not all bad there are benefits uh Creativity often is found in people that are ADD, the the exploration of different concepts. There's a wide variety of interests. I'm a mile wide and an inch deep on on the things I know about. Um, It works well under pressure. 
When you can hyper-focus and, you know, it, it's no problem. You, you have an emergency come and, and it comes in and you can immediately, oh, snap to it. I'm going to deal with this. But ADD is not the cause of my perfectionistic tendencies. It just exacerbates them. The real root of my personal perfectionism, I believe, is my desire to be accepted by others, to be recognized as a person of worth, for people to look and say, oh, big vote, he's got it all together. He's got profound wisdom. He's got something that, you know, I need. I want the sermon that I preach to be the perfect sermon, you know? Um, and so I mull in my mind over and over what would constitute the perfect sermon. Now, that can be different for different people, and that's the problem. Anytime that you try to reach perfection, it might be perfection for you, but it's not perfection for the person that just wants you to tell a joke and then get out of there so they can beat the crowd to the restaurant. I overanalyze and critique myself to ridiculous measures. And for failure, I procrastinate writing the sermon until the absolute last minute. The adrenaline kicks in and the hyper-focus takes over and you finish the job before the deadline and then you're exhausted. You know it isn't the perfect sermon, but perhaps you can fake it. And then after it's done, someone tells you that it was a great sermon and the adrenaline rush comes back and confirms to you that that's the way to write a sermon. And so you do it again. And that spiral leaves you exhausted. Now you fill in the blank with what it can be in your life where you demand perfection from yourself and then you think if you don't do some of the same types of things. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there are a lot of people who struggle to achieve that unattainable goal of perfection. Your symptoms might be different than mine, but I know there are a multitude of reasons that we struggle with perfectionisms. I don't know, I don't know what it is for you. Perhaps you had a parent who constantly demanded perfection from you, and you feel worthless, and, and they made you feel worthless when you made a mistake. Perhaps you come from a high-achieving family, Everyone in your family is a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher, and the expectation of you is to follow the family tradition. Perhaps you received high praise for a project you did, and you seek that adrenaline rush when you get finished with something and, and everyone says that you did a good job. Whatever the reason... I do know that we live in a world that expects perfection. We live in a photoshopped, airbrushed world that the perfection is always there. Everything is expected to be picture perfect. Picture perfect. The image that I present is perfect. We have computers that instantly correct our spelling errors and even fix the grammar. I remember back in college and high school and things before computers, you know, when to, you know, you would, you would make a paper and you had to 
backspace so many times to get the center of the, you know, the title page and all that. And so I would spend time doing that so that would be perfect. And then you'd do that. And then there would be this blank page. And that's when the perfectionism, like, okay, I've got to write this perfect from the beginning. And it doesn't work that way. You have to just spew out stuff and work on it. And, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We, we see other things. We see the social media. We're, we're surrounded by Instagram and TikTok influencers who show us what a truly interesting life is like, and we don't measure up. We see friends post their perfect family photos and their dream vacation photos, and we think, oh, wow, wouldn't it be nice to be them? I, they have the perfect life, and I don't measure up. There are, according to some psychological, psychological stuff and, and things that I've read, there are three basic expressions of perfectionism. One is this self-oriented perfectionism. That's the perfectionism that someone expects of themselves. They're highly critical of themselves. They define their self-worth on how well they perform. They're a high achiever who cannot imagine failing in anything. The self-oriented perfectionist believes themselves fully capable of being perfect. Pride is the motivator, but it also is their downfall. For no one was and ever has been perfect except for one, Jesus. When we believe that we can attain perfection, we rob the glory of perfection from God. You replace the glory of God with your own glory. You claim to be independent of God because you're self-sufficient in your perfection. And then again, that robs the glory from God. There's a second type, and I think this is more where I come in and slip in. It's the socially prescribed perfectionism. We live in a world that embraces perfection and rejects imperfection. We are especially vulnerable to this because of a social media-driven world. It leads to low self-esteem, anxiety, depression. We live and fear what other people think. It's kind of like we're in junior high school all over again where you're so concerned with being accepted and any false move, anything that you do that is instantly derided and laughed at. And we carry that into adulthood and we think, well, people are always looking at me. And the fact is, most times, people couldn't care less. But it doesn't have to be society's expectation of you that you fear. It can be any of a number of people that you think you have to be perfect for. You can be striving to be perfect for your parents. You can be striving to be perfect for your spouse. 
You can strive to be perfect for a teacher or a boss, and you live in a state of anxiety and fear that you will fail and will lose the approval of those people who are so important to you. Your sense of self-worth is tied up in what other people think. Just a, a little aside, I remember not too many years ago, I actually went back to graduate school and did some work, and I was so frustrated with one teacher because I, I would commit my life. You know, I'm going to write the perfect paper, and I'd give this paper, and I would get it back, and it would have a check mark at the top. And I'd like, you've got to be kidding. A check mark? I want to have some feedback. I want, to, I want to know exactly how good I did. I want that teacher to tell me. And I even wrote him a note, and I didn't get a response back, because I thought, you know, he has his own life and demands, and he was a minister that was an adjunct professor, and he didn't have time to spent a lot of time, but it was my need that I needed to hear back just how good and great and perfect I was. And really, I didn't. You want to live up to the expectations that you perceive they hold of you. But even when you achieve momentary perfection, it's never completely done. You know, you write the perfect paper, well, there's always another paper they need to write. You, you, you achieve the perfect meal. It's perfect. And everybody says, oh, that's the perfect meal. Why can't you do that every time? It leaves you exhausted when you demand perfection of yourself based on what other people's expectations are, or at least your perceived expectations. Third type is this others-oriented perfectionism. This is the perfectionist that expects perfection from others. The boss demands that her employee works constantly without taking a break and that their productivity level is always increasing. It's the husband that demands that his spouse always keeps a spotless house and always keeps the kids under control and that their kids are always polite and never interrupt. Because if they are not deemed as perfect, then it will reflect badly back on them. The others-oriented perfectionist is intolerant of people who, who don't drive perfectly or, or, and, and they... they they complain loudly and often about the stupidity of those people around them. The others-oriented perfectionist has a harsh, judgmental spirit that totally misses out on the grace of a loving father who accepts people just as they are and then works in them and through them. You know, the great tragedy of perfectionism is that it prevents us from being who we truly are. All our imperfections that God so wonderfully created within us, if we perceive that everything has to be perfect, then the not quite perfect attempts are given up on. And we live in a state of defeatism. There's a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton who was 
a Christian philosopher, apologist, did some incredible writings in the early 1900s, and he said this, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And I look at that and I think, well, that's just an excuse for mediocrity. You know, just, just kind of slovenly go your way through it. No, what he's saying there, anything that's doing, anything worth doing, I, yeah, anything worth, <laughs> I was in reading right, anything worth doing, you've got to start out somewhere. If you want to do something, start out somewhere. Just write something down. It gets you started. But if you think it has to be perfect at the beginning, you're mistaken because it never will be until you practice it. You can't learn to play the piano by playing, you know, Beethoven symphonies. You have to start out with the basics. You start out slowly and with mistakes. And, and, and it's the same way in every part of our life. But the problem is, so, with the, for the perfectionist, is they fail early and they give up. They say, oh, that's too hard. I don't want to keep working on it. It may not be perfect, but it's an expression of God through you. It's not an excuse for mediocrity. We should still strive for excellence. We work for excellence, but you only become excellent by practice. You only achieve excellence by doing it again and again. Are you a perfectionist? I know I struggle with it, and, and some of you this is going way over your head and you don't have that problem, but I've prayed so many times that God would make me more reliant on him and less on myself, but yes, yet the struggle continues. It's my weakness. It's my Achilles heel. Now, the Apostle Paul had a weakness too. He called it his thorn in the flesh, and he wrote about it in his second letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he's, he's talking about how he's prayed. He, he's prayed to Jesus, and Jesus told him this. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. God said, no, Paul, you're going to keep that thorn. I'm not taking it away from you because your weakness is how I'm glorified. Your reliance, not on your power, but on my power, is how Christ's power is seen in you. Now, I do appreciate the invitation that Doug gave me, and, and I appreciate you allowing me and being gracious to, to share with you. I, I do hope I have not made this message too much about me, Perfectionism is a weakness of mine. ADD can be considered a weakness. It's just kind of who I am. But like Paul, I will boast in these weaknesses. I will tell people where I am weak, not only because it's honest and transparent, but because it encourages others who may be dealing with the same issues. As we share our weakness, now, it may not be, that may not be your weakness, but as you share your weakness, as we share my weakness, it invites people 
to help us in our troubles. It encourages us to be the body of Christ, supporting one another and functioning as a whole. And because of that, when that is seen, Christ's power is seen. There's one last passage of Scripture that I believe speaks directly to this issue of perfectionism. And perhaps this should be my life verse. It's Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since there's so many people looking at us, and, and let us throw off everything that hinders. Let us throw off, for me, perfectionism. Let's, let's get rid of that and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let's strive for perfection, I mean, for, for, for excellence. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, and notice that, perfecter of faith. Again, he's the perfecter. He's the one that worked it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Lay off the weight of perfectionism. Set it aside and embrace in the perfection that Jesus Christ has given to us through his sacrifice on the cross. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, there's a little thing in, in your bulletin, this last thing about the kingdom application, this application for life, and this is what I want you to do. Fill in the blank for what you need to take your attention Change the direction of my sight, God, from, and you fill in the blank there. It, I've got some suggestions from self to Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. God, take thy eyes off myself and let me turn them to Jesus. Take, let me take my eyes off others and turn it to Jesus. Let me take my eyes off from society and all its expectations and turn it to Jesus. Let me take my eyes off my finances. You fill in the blank. I don't know what it is for you, but I know this, that Jesus wants to accomplish a perfect work in each one of us. And we need to be less reliant upon our own devices and more perfect, uh, more reliant upon the perfect will and the Holy Spirit empowering us to live the life that he intends. Maybe you need to rest your judging eyes, judging yourself, others, whatever, and quit focusing on other people's mistakes and imperfection or your own and fix your eyes on Jesus and the grace that he offers to you and to them. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful that you give us grace through Jesus. For without him, we are lost. Father, I am so thankful 
that you have made me the way that you've made me and help me to embrace the person that you have made me. And I pray that for everybody in this room, that you allow us to each kind of look at ourselves and say, God, you have made me wonderfully and fearfully. And, and, and Father, we are so thankful for what you've done. But help us to fix our eyes on you in all that we do. Help us to see everything in the light of your glory and grace. And help us to live like this with our hearts tor turned towards you today. Thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen.